Hello, and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and this is episode 17. Today, we're going to cover a fairly infamous story, and this story is about potentially America's very first serial killer family. And family serial killers are very rare. Uh, So, you know what, this doesn't need much of an introduction. Let's get right into the story. Today's episode is on the Bloody Benders. The Bender family appeared seemingly out of thin air. They carried out horrifying and uncountable acts of heinous brutality, and then they vanished without a trace. Their actions are entwined with the foundation myths of the American West, a region where Anglo settlers imagined a future full of opportunity and little restrictions due to things like class, family background, or even the law to obstruct them. After stealing this land from its original people, the American government gave it to thousands of low-income immigrants who hoped to establish themselves and potentially make a fortune. For some, the American dream is realized, but for at least 11 people, it would be their undoing. So let's talk a little bit about what Kansas is like in the middle of the 1800s. So due to bloody clashes between pro and anti-slavery forces, Kansas in the middle of the 1800s was a lawless region known as Bleeding Kansas. The territory which joined the Union as a state in 1861 was controlled by sporadic judges or sheriffs who were frequently dishonest and always outnumbered. The Osage Indians were relocated from Lebec County to Oklahoma after the Civil War in order to make the Kansas Territory accessible for European immigrants. Uh, The Osage were relocated by the U.S. government uh, to a new territory in what would later become the state of Oklahoma. Homesteaders, mostly a group of hardworking pioneering families uh, who were farming the region, were later given access to this and in quotes, vacated land, uh, because it wasn't actually vacated. They were forced off the land. So five spiritualist families uh, make their home in western Lebec County in 1870. This would have been about seven miles to the northeast of Cherryvale. The Benders are one of these families. So they consist of John Bender Sr., his wife Elmira, son John Jr., and daughter Kate. The family picked one of the available claims and started to settle there. On the western slopes of the mounds that still go by their name today, John Bender Sr. selected a 160-acre parcel, and it's directly adjacent to the Osage Mission Independence Trail, which ran from Independence to Fort Scott. His son picked a little plot of property to the north of his father's, but he never actually settled there or did any improvements. According to Susan uh, Janus's book, Hell, Half Acre, The Untold Story of the Benders, a Serial Killer Family on the American Frontier, the story of the Benders begins in October of 1870, when two men who claim to be John Gebert and John Bender arrive in Osage Township. Although neither men ever explained how they were related, it appeared that they were either by blood or by marriage. Nothing about their past is ever revealed. Gebhardt talks nonstop, making it evident that they're seeking a claim, but the older man speaks very little, largely in German. 
According to the Homestead Act, every piece of land that had been surveyed by the federal government was open to settlers who wanted to reside there and make improvements. The two men, along with Ma Bender, John Bender's wife, and Kate, their daughter, build a modest one-room cabin alongside a creek in Labette County. Few people could understand John at all and his wife because of their accents, uh, which they described as really guttural. Mrs. Bender, a heavyset woman, earned the nickname She-Devil from her neighbors due to her lack of friendliness and her menacing gaze. So Ma Bender actually boasts of being a medium who could communicate with the dead, and she claims that she could cook herbs and roots uh, that can be used to perform charms or evil spells. This would have definitely added to her already intimidating appearance. In addition, Kate promotes herself as a spirit medium, offering her skills as a spiritual healer and someone who could also communicate with the dead. For a few years, their house serves as a kind of way station for visitors on this really sparse, lonely stretch of land. Kate also declares her belief in free love, which um, maybe wasn't so common among spiritualists of the time. Now, numerous historical uh, criminal reports claim that the Bender family divided their inn, which again was really just a cabin, into two sections with the aid of a heavy canvas curtain. So the Bender's family residence was located at the back of the cabin, and a dining room, a small kitchen, a store were added to the front of the cabin, where guests were welcomed and provided with provisions for their onward journey. Soon after the Benders came to the area, people started to disappear. At first, no one pays much attention. After all, this was the frontier, and people would frequently die or disappear. They could be killed by the elements, they could be drowned in accidents, or they could simply choose to leave their former life behind in order to start over. The bloodshed really truly begins in May of 1871, where a man with his throat cut and his skull crushed was discovered in Drum Creek, southeast of the Bender Estate in what would become Montgomery County. Two more men are discovered in February of 1872 with the same unusual wounds. By the fall of that year, travelers had begun to vanish from the Osage Trail. As soon as word of the slain and missing circulated throughout the area, people started to steer clear of the trail. While this was going on, uh, vigilante groups made valiant efforts to attempt to bring anyone to justice. Uh, They frequently detained men, but would later free them. As time goes on, the disappearances increase in frequency. By the spring of 1873, the area was filled with stories, and travelers again were very wary to take the trail. The Osage Township actually convenes a meeting in March at the Harmony Grove Schoolhouse to discuss what, if anything, could be done to stop what they considered malicious rumors spread by the surrounding municipalities. And both Bendermen are among the approximately 75 attendees. However, it's going to be George Newton Longcore's disappearance that starts a chain of events that eventually leads to the discovery of the truth behind these murders and disappearances. Longcore and his 18-month-old daughter, Marianne, had left Independence, Kansas for Iowa after the loss of his wife, but they never arrive. Soon after, uh, the team was discovered abandoned at Fort Scott, Kansas. 
So Dr. William Henry York, Lancour's former neighbor who had sold him the horses and wagon for the journey, receives a call. In the spring of 1873, Dr. William Henry York begins his search for Lancour and Marianne. As he travels to Fort Scott, he stops to speak with homesteaders along the route. He's also able to prove that the clothing discovered did in fact belong to Longcorn and his daughter, and that the wagon and horses belonged to the animals that he himself had given to Longcorn. However, Dr. York will make a catastrophic error by choosing to stop at the Bender Inn on his way back to Independence. And Dr. York is never seen again. What the Benders are unaware of is that their latest victim is a member of a pretty distinguished family. Colonel Ed York and Senator Alexander M. York were Dr. York's two brothers. And in order to find Dr. York, Colonel York promptly puts up a party of 75 men to search the area. In March of 1873, they trace him all the way back to the Bender Inn. Now, the Benders claim to have no knowledge of Dr. York during their first encounter, and they speculate that the traveler must have encountered some kind of mischief at a secluded region close to Drum Creek. And John Jr. actually claims that he was even shot at in the same area that Dr. York banished. Colonel York at the time is forced to assume they're just not responsible for his brother's abduction because he couldn't find any evidence to support it. Now, the topic is eventually raised that there's actually 10 people who had been reported missing, including Dr. William York. Realizing there's a really serious issue in their township, this group makes the decision to check every farm between Drum Creek and Big Hill Creek. And the majority of the attendees offer to have their property searched. The vendors, however, stay quiet. Eventually, Billy Toll, who's a neighbor of the Benders, notice that the Bender Inn appears to be deserted and that their farm animals have been unfed. Leroy Dick, the township trustee, is informed by Toll about the situation And shortly after, a search party uh, that included Colonel York, the brother of Dr. York, arrive at the cabin. And they discover it's empty of supplies, food, clothing, and any personal items. They're also greeted by a really foul smell within the abandoned inn. And on the floor of the cabin is a trap door that has been hammered shut. The men decide to tear open the trap door And what they discover is a six foot deep hole filled with clotted blood. And that's what was emitting the foul odor. There are no bodies in the hole though. So the men actually pull the entire cabin apart. And that includes pulling the physical structure and looking underneath. However, no remains are discovered there either. So they carry on digging around the cabin, especially where the benders had planted an orchard and a vegetable garden. It's there that they discover the first body in a pit in the ground, lying head down with its feet bare. And that was the body of Dr. York, who had his throat slit from ear to ear, and his head had been bludgeoned. The digging will continue the following day, and a mother and a little girl are among the nine additional victims and several mutilated body parts discovered. The burial location is dubbed Hell's Half Acre, and a second York brother, A lawyer and state senator from Independence offers a $1,000 reward for information that results in the Bender family's capture. Governor Thomas Osborne increases that sum on May 17th 
by providing a $2,000 additional prize for the capture of all four benders. So you might be wondering how the Bender family managed to kill all of these people. And I do want to say that it is widely agreed that it's very likely that Kate Bender was actually the ringleader of the serial killer family, which is uh, maybe not something people would assume. So what the theory is, is that guests are assigned the seat of honor at the dinner table, and that seat is situated over the trap door to the cellar and backed up against the canvas room divider based on evidence and accounts provided by Bender and survivors. One of the men would attack the visitor from behind with a hammer once they were seated, and then one of the ladies would uh, slit the victim's throat to ensure their death. After being stripped, the body would be dropped through the trap door before being buried or dismembered. And despite the fact that some victims were carrying cash or valuables, it appears that the benders were much more interested in the thrill of the kill than in making a profit. The cabin also contained about a dozen bullet holes, most likely caused by victims who had attempted to defend themselves. And it's now actually thought that only the mother and daughter were really connected or family. And none of the four are actually named Bender. Elvira is believed to have been born Elmira Mark in the Adirondack Mountains. And before adopting the identity Bender, she had a number of children and husbands, some of whom, according to rumors, passed away from head injuries. Now, prior to moving to either Germany or the Netherlands, John Sr. was most likely born John Flickinger. Uh, But Kate Bender was likely Elvira's fifth child, uh, Eliza Griffith. So after all of these bodies are discovered, uh, there are a few sporadic attempts to capture the Benders, but they're neither apprehended or even really pursued. Arresting them would have required bringing in something like the army, given the fact that the area is surrounded by criminals, and that included other murderers and thieves seeking refuge in a place outside the purview of federal or state law enforcement. The Benders are able to live essentially unbothered, despite widespread calls for their detention, because state and local governments as well as private investigators or bounty hunters lacked the will or desire to bring them to justice. Now, an elderly man who investigators claimed matched Paul Bender's description was apprehended in Idaho in 1884 for a hammer-related homicide. The man attempts to flee by severing his own foot while investigators were waiting for additional information from Kansas. He bleeds to death and dies before his identity could be confirmed. And in Michigan in 1889, a mother named Elmira and her daughter Sarah Elizabeth are detained for larceny and later identified as Elvira and Kate Bender. When they're transported to Kansas, however, a panel from Labette County is set up to verify their identities. And it's not consistent. So it can't be proven that these are, in fact, Ma and Kate Bender. So since the women's identity as the Benders is seriously questioned, they had to be released and transported back to Michigan. In the aftermath of all of these murders, thousands of tourists and souvenir hunters descended on the Benders' former homestead in the years that followed, and they robbed the property down to the bricks bordering the cellar and even the stones lining the well. 
I want to go on a little bit of an aside here because there's an interesting story from Susan Janus's book, again, Hell's Half Acre, The Untold Story of the Benders, a Serial Killer Family on the American Frontier. And that's that Laura Ingle Wilder's Little House on the Prairie novels uh, produced parables of independence and tenacity, and they were set in picturesque settings like Kansas. And there is, you know, they... They showed Kansas as a place where like the good hearted could be toughened, but they would succeed. Although the Benders don't actually become figures in any of Wilder's writings in um, or at a book fair in Detroit in 1937, she tells an audience how as a young kid, she and her family had stopped at the Benders on the way to their final destination. And she said, quote, I saw Kate Bender standing in the doorway. We didn't go in because we couldn't afford to stop at a tavern, end quote. After the bodies are found, a neighbor knocks on Wilder's door and they speak earnestly with her father, who grabs his weapon and informs the family that the vigilantes are called out. He doesn't return until the next morning. And in the years that followed, anytime he was questioned about the family, Wilder told the audience that her father would respond with a peculiar tone of finality, quote, they will never be discovered. As good of a story as this is, and, and the fact that even Little House on the Prairie and the Bender family are ever in the same sentence, it's almost certain that this story is just not true. Uh, Rose Wilder Lane, who is uh, Wilder's daughter, tried to incorporate a connection to the ben- Bender family into her family's history and persuade her mother to include it in her writings. Uh, Despite Wilder's decision not to put it in any of her books because she felt, and this was probably correct, um, that the Benders were not the correct subject matter suitable for a children's book, apparently she wasn't quite able to resist the lure of being associated with such an infamous case. And the story of the Bender family was so provocative that a Bender museum was established in Cherryvale in 1961. And an exact reproduction of the Bender cabin is constructed to contain antiques and household items in commemoration of the Kansas statewide centennial celebration. It garnered more than 2,000 visitors in its first three days of operations. And the Dick family donated three of the Bender hammers to the museum in 1967. The museum remained a well-liked tourist attraction uh, until a fire station needed the land. Uh, which forced the museum's closure in 1978. Even though many favored just moving the structure, Cherryville residents opposed the idea because they didn't want their community to be associated with the Bender horrors forever. In the end, the artifacts, which included hammers, photographs, and newspaper articles, uh, were kept and are still on display at the Cherryville Museum today. In the end, the Benders never did face any kind of justice, and their ultimate fates are unknown. Today, all that's left is their story. And that is the end of the case of the Bloody Benders. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to review, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can follow us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod or reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another uh, dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.